got to I got to thinking about this song and I was really pushing into what God had for it this morning because there's so much to that. And I started looking into what the word abide means. And to abide means to remain stable or in a fixed state. In Psalm 91, verse 1, it starts off right away. It says, When you abide under the shadow of, the, of Shaddai, you are hidden in the strength of God Most High. So I got into, since I'm my mom and dad's son, I looked into the definition of what Shaddai means. The two of my favorite definitions of it was God, the destroyer of enemies, and God of the mountain. What's your mountain this morning? He's already been there. He's already destroyed your enemies. But the way that he destroys your enemies or he already takes over your mountain is whenever you abide in who he is. Whenever you sit in his presence and you just whenever you just sit in who he is whenever you take in his presence that's whenever that's whenever he takes your mountains for you that's so good now I'm not saying that because I said it I'm not saying that that's good because I said it I'm saying that's good because we need a God who takes our mountains need a God who takes our mountains, who slays our enemies for us, who comes back with the heads of our enemies and shows us, look, I've already got it. What's your mountain this morning? What's your mountain? Because God's already taken it. He's already knocked it down. He's already moved it. Know that this morning about your God. God, we thank you for this morning. God, we thank you for your presence just sitting in this place. God, we thank you that we're able to abide in who you are. God, let your presence fall in this place. Let your presence fall in each and every one of us. Let it be so thick, God, that we can physically feel it like oil on our bodies, that we're able to feel your presence sitting on our shoulders, on the top of our heads. And give it up for our worship team. Thank you, James. I was telling them in the back, uh, I was telling my worship team in the back, or not my worship team, but they are my team. I consider them my team because we're a family. But I was telling them in the back that it is so easy to move into what the Spirit of God is saying whenever whenever they're on worship. I mean, it is just incredible what our worship team is. And I'm not saying that because I'm part of the team, but our team is just incredible. I love it. All right. Well, how is everybody doing this morning? Awesome. Awesome. I want to welcome Kingdom Ranch. Guys, we thank you so much for joining us this morning. That's our satellite church out in California. If y'all don't know, uh, they... How long have they been watching our services? About four or five months, something like that. It's been a long time, and we're so thankful that we get to uh, have them as our family and as our 
as being a part of our family. So give it up for Kingdom Ranch that are joining in. So the first thing that I want to do this morning is I want to bring honor to my mom and my dad. My dad's not here this morning. He's feeling under the weather. Uh, But I want to bring honor to them because they have built such an amazing foundation that me, C-Dub, Josh, Candace, we all get to stand on now. And without them, we wouldn't have that foundation. So I want to honor my mom and my dad and the mother and father of this house, first and foremost. (laughs) Secondly, happy Father's Day, everybody. I know that it's hard to compete with golf and with fishing, but y'all still showed up this morning, which makes me feel really good. I'm not going to lie. Uh, So happy Father's Day to everybody. And if you're not a dad yet, like me, I hope to join the ranks someday. (laughs) So uh, yeah, happy Father's Day once again. So as I said, uh, or I don't know if I've actually said it, my name is Rhett Gleghorn. I am the product of Pastor Darren and Pastor Lynette. (laughs) They did pretty good, I'd like to say. So if you haven't gotten to meet me or you haven't gotten to uh, talk to me or get to know me at all, I have some things that I think that you should know about me. Um, First and foremost, in November, November 14th of 2021, I got married to the most incredible woman in the entire world, Lacey. I never really understood whenever guys would say, oh yeah, she's my better half. Like I never really got that. Now I do, because she truly is my better half. She is, she's everything to me. I love you. Why am I getting all weepy? Yes, he is. Amen. Second thing that you should know about me, uh, I work for the church. I am the graphic designer, website manager, social media, the tech guy, per se. Um... So everything that you see on the TVs during pre-service run-throughs, the videos, the uh, Facebook posts, Instagram posts, the website, everything like that, that's my business. That's what I do. Now, thank you, Miss Felicia. I love that. So my official title at the church, me and mom, whenever I first came on, I came on staff last year of February, I believe. And we were trying to come up with what my job title should be. And I didn't want to be IT guy because that's lame. No offense if you're in IT, but I got to pick my job title and I didn't want to go with IT guy. I just honestly, but my official job title is creative instigator. And I love it. Mom said, well, you like to instigate stuff. You like to push buttons. You like to be a, a, like a little bit of a troublemaker, and, but you also like to be creative. So why don't we just mesh the two together and be creative instigator? I was like, dang right. I like that. All right. My third thing that you got to know about me, and if you've known me for any certain amount of time, you know that shoes, Woo, man, don't get me started on shoes now. This is how many shoes I got. In that photo, I have all my boots and my like nice dress shoes kind of on this side, I guess. And then all the rest of that is Jordans, uh, Air Force Ones, Fear of Gods, uh, Blazers, stuff like that. 
I counted my shoes. Some of y'all are probably going to be like, dude, you don't need that much shoes. I have almost a single pair to wear every day for the month. I have 27 pairs of shoes. I dedicate a lot of time and a lot of money to building my shoe collection. Just to give you an idea, the shoes that I have on right now, don't look them up because you're going to start calling the church and saying he needs to be paid less, okay? (laughs) Just to give you an idea, these shoes that I have on are called the Air Jordan 1 Rookie of the Years. Thank you for panning down to him. Oh, this way. There we go. (laughs) These, side profile, okay, okay. So these shoes are like my favorite shoes. I love these shoes, and they were a gift for my birthday, but I still had to dip out of my own pockets. I had birthday money from my wife, my mom and dad, my grandmother, and I still had to dip out of my own pockets. That just goes to show how much I like to invest in my shoes, and they truly are an investment. If you look into shoe reselling, there's a market, buddy. I tell you what. All right. So that's enough about me. You're going to hear a little bit more about me as we move on in the message. But this morning, we are continuing our series, Where Are My Davids? Excuse me, I'm getting cotton mouth a little bit. So this series has been curated by our prayer team. And our prayer team at the beginning of the year got a word from God calling out the Davids in the church. Which, whenever that was brought to Dad's attention, and whenever they shared it with him, Dad got an idea for a series called Where Are My Davids? So this series is one that we have wanted to create to reach for the higher hanging fruit. That's specific words from my dad, Pastor Darren. He said, reach for higher hanging fruit. What that means is we didn't want to stay base level. We didn't want to stay with David and Goliath or David was a great warrior. David was a worshiper. We wanted to take a deeper dive into those things. If that's what we choose to minister on, we wanted to take a deeper dive and find a new aspect of David through those stories. So usually whenever you hear a message about David, it's geared towards the men. And it's usually not very nice to the men. It's usually like, (laughs) kind of thing, like, let me beat you over the head with a baseball bat and a Bible to try and get this in your head. Like, it's usually a, a, uh, you're not a good enough warrior. You're not worshiping enough. You're not cutting heads off of giants, that kind of deal. While those messages can be good sometimes, we wanted this to be an uplifting series, and we wanted it to pertain to not just the men in the church, we wanted it to pertain to everybody. And with the spirit of David, the heart of David is not a gender-specific thing. The spirit of David is on the inside of each and every one of us. I came up with the saying. You want to know what my saying is? It's not a part issue, it's a heart issue. Oh, come on, that was way funnier than y'all made it out to be. I came up with that on my own. That was smart. Come on now. (laughs) So anyways, whenever we were getting ready for the series and everything, Dad asked me to minister, and 
I was nervous because I haven't ministered in like a year and a half or something like that. Last year in January was the last time that I ministered, whenever I got back home from Texas. And I was not practicing the be ready in season and out scripture, if I'm going to be 100% honest. I was like, you want me to minister? I put a little bit of a crease in my seat whenever he asked me to. But... It was, it was, it was nerve-wracking because I didn't know what I was going to minister on, and I started really pushing into what God had, and I kept having these ideas. And then, as I would think about them, I was like, "No, that's that's not higher-hanging fruit." I mean, it could be, but I don't know how to research into that, or I don't know if I'm just making something up. So, one morning, I woke up out of a dead sleep. And I don't wake up out of a dead sleep very often. Usually something has to wake me up or my alarm wakes me up. I don't usually wake up before my alarm very often. And whenever I woke up, I had a thought in my head that wasn't my usual thoughts whenever I first wake up. My usual thoughts whenever I first wake up are, I'm tired, I want to go back to bed, does the sun actually have to come up? That's, just being honest, that's the first thing that usually pops into my head is like, I'd need to close my eyes again and sleep. But this particular morning, it popped into my head, and I knew that it was God because, like I said, I don't have that thought very often of just random things popping into my head. So I started researching it, and I started to roll it around in my head, and that's what really brought what I have to minister to light. So if you would, turn to 2 Samuel twelve thirteen, and this will be our jumping-off point for this morning. So up to this point... Um, this is, or before this scripture, David has sent Uriah out to be murdered. Uh, Uriah was one of his mighty men, and he gave orders to, for the front lines to retreat and leave Uriah on the battlefield so that he would be killed. And David did this because David had a thing for Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. So he sleeps with Bathsheba, he murders Uriah, she gets pregnant, and the prophet Nathan comes to... To David. Now, when the prophets came back in the day, it was a 50-50 shot of whether or not you were going to get chewed out or you were going to get congratulated. And David was obviously going to get chewed out, but he didn't know it. So Nathan tells him a story. He says there's a poor man that has a sheep, and this sheep is his everything. I mean, he loves this sheep. And on the opposite end, there's a rich man that has many, many sheep, but instead of slaughtering one of his own sheep, he takes the poor man's sheep and kills it and uses it for his feast. Nathan says, what do you think about that, David? David goes, well, I tell you what I think. I think that that dude should have his head put on a stake. Like, that ain't cool. That, who, who would take another man's sheep? Dang it. Bring him to me. Well, Nathan goes, I don't got to bring him to you, dog. He's already here. He's you. That's Revelation's version. But um, he... He tells David, this is you. You're the rich man in the story. You killed Uriah and took his wife, his prized possession, his wife. So here's where we pick up in 2 Samuel 12, 13. It says, then David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, yes, but the Lord has forgiven you and you won't die for this sin. Let's pray real quick. Dear Father God, thank you for this day. Thank you for bringing everybody here safely. God, we pray that this morning our hearts are prepared for you. 
Uh, God, as we were saying during the transition, God, we pray for your presence to just fill this room. God, I pray that you come and sit on every single one of us and that you just fall in this place, Father God. Lord, I pray that you will flow out of me this morning anything that I say of my flesh. God, I pray that it falls on deaf ears. And God, everything of you is heard and that is loud and clear. In Jesus' name, amen. So usually whenever I start building a message, God has me minister on something that I'm currently going through or that I'm learning myself. And being a newlywed, I've had to make a lot of adjustments. I thought that I knew what was up whenever I was single or whenever I was just dating my wife because I had a sister and a mom in the house. I ain't no jack, bruh. I didn't know a single thing. So being married has taught me so many important things, but while I was thinking about it, these are the things that it's taught me the most. Number one, never leave the toilet seat up. My wife's clapping. She says, yes, baby, get it. <laughs> never leave the toilet seat up. If, you, if you're a guy and you've ever sat on a toilet seat while the seat isn't down, buddy, you know their pain. It sucks. <laughs> The second thing that it's taught me, always close the shower curtain. Husbands, does anybody's wife make you do this? Raise your hands. Travis, that's it? Okay, back here. Just a couple. Okay, Mana. I didn't know that was a thing. I, I keep my shower curtain at home at my mom and dad's. I keep it open. You want to know why I keep it open? Because I feel like somebody is going to be hiding behind that curtain <laughs> I got to walk in there and I got to give it a quick jab real quick just to make sure no, no one's behind it. I got to give it that quick one, two, you know, I've been going to the MMA gym with my mom and dad. I knocked someone out. Wade knows. <laughs> so that's the second thing that it's taught me. Number three, what's mine is hers and what's hers is hers. Ladies, if you're thinking, that, that ain't true, that ain't true, that, he doesn't know what he's talking about. I want you to go home, I want you to look in your closets, and I want you to look at how many sweatshirts of his are on your side of the closet. Okay, okay, let me tell you something. My wife likes to wear my sweatshirts because I'm a big dude, it's nice and comfy, it's cozy on the inside. I can't wear her stuff. <laughs> Like I said, I'm a big dude. I always poke fun at her and I say, folding your clothes whenever I do laundry is like folding American Girl Dog clothes. It's like this big. I can't fit into her things. So the saying, what's mine is hers. My sweatshirts are hers. She can wear my cologne if she wants to. And what's hers is hers. I can't wear her perfume. People make fun of me. And I dang sure can't wear her sweatshirts. People make extra fun of me. Right? But on a more serious note, being married has taught me something that's very, very important. And I have a couple of questions, and this will kind of give you a little bit of a guide for where I'm wanting to move into. And I require group participation for this. If you want to raise your hands, please do. But if not, I understand. We're new here sometimes. We don't want to draw attention to ourselves. I get it. It's all good. But anyways, my first question is... Who admits that they are wrong sometimes? 
dang, that's a lot of hands. I didn't expect that. I thought people were going to be like, nah, I'm right all the time. <laughs> My second question, who likes to apologize when they're wrong? Before you answer, we're in church. Don't lie. Okay? All right. Who likes to apologize when they're wrong? Okay. 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 All right. My third and final question. Is it easy for you to forgive when another person is wrong? Raise your hands. Raise your hands if it is. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Easy. Easy. All right. We got some up and downs. Some eh, sometimes. Well, I'm still learning this. As a newlywed, as somebody who is, has to learn to forgive easily and quickly, this is still really new to me because usually I can hold on to a grudge real dang good. But I, need, I had to learn forgive and forget. Forgive as soon as it happens. Don't go to bed angry, anything like that. So I'm still learning this to this day. I'm still trying to get better. So while I'm up here ministering, I don't want y'all to think, oh, he's preaching to us like he's got it all figured out. I ain't got it figured out. (laughs) I'm still learning. I'm still trying to be better. So as I'm up here, I want it to be a conversation of what I've learned, what I've studied out, and how I can apply it to my life, how you can apply it to your life, and how we're going to get better as a group, right? Okay, cool. So I want y'all to know where I'm coming from. So I have a quick story. This is a little bit more about me. This isn't with my wife, because she'd probably hit me if I told one of our stories about us getting in a little tiff or something. But this was back in high school. I graduated in the year 2019, and this was whenever I was a senior. So at our school, we had a strict no hats inside rule. This rule was stupid, in my opinion. I hated this rule because I love my ball caps, second to shoes. So one day, I get to school a little bit late. I make it to class like right on time, walk into first period. I didn't have time to go put my King Super Sack lunch in my locker. I didn't have time to go put my ball cap in my locker. I just took it all with me and zing-zanged on over there. So I get to class. I take my ball cap off because I like the teacher. I didn't want to cause a problem. I wanted to be respectful. Well, class was over, and the class was in a modular building. So I was, it was outside. I had to go back inside from outside. I don't know how else you get inside. But (laughs) I went back inside, and on my way inside, I had my hat off, and out of instinct, I just put it on my head real quick because my hands was full. I was carrying my King Super Sack lunch. (laughs) So I go inside, walk through the hallway, and there's this one teacher, Mr. McCutcheon, who was so strict on the hats he threatened me every single day. I'm going to take that hat. I'm going to take that hat. And I'm like, no, you ain't. You ain't going to take my ball cap. So I take it off real quick and, and leave. But this particular day, he caught me with it on. And he reaches up as I'm walking past him and does one of these. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> if you were raised anything like I was, you know you don't touch another man's hat. Right. Much less take it off his own head. So as you can imagine, I was hot. So I turn around and I grab my hat by the back and I say, what are you doing? He says, I'm taking your hat. I said, no, you ain't. And a teacher, another teacher heard and he says, you better let go of that hat or you're going to the office. 
So I let go of my hat, let him take it. I'm mad. I go on to my next class and I go throughout my day still mad. And I had to go sign out a computer for one of my classes. My computer was dead or something like that. I forgot at home. I don't know. He happened to be the tech teacher. So I go up to his room, sign out a laptop, and as I'm on my way out, I say, Hey, Kutch, when am I getting my hat back? And he says, Not till the end of the year. And I said, That's crap. <laughs> I was hot. I said, I want my hat back now. And he says, You ain't getting it back. So things start to escalate. He raises his voice. I raise my voice a little bit. I didn't yell at him. I just talked to him sternly, like he would a four-year-old. <laughs> so... I go on about my day. I leave the classroom even more mad. He was in the middle of a class, by the way. I know, it's bad. So I leave the class still mad, and I get to the end of my day. All my friends were telling me, dude, you're in the right here. He shouldn't have taken your hat. I was like, yes, I am. You're you're right. So I get to the end of the day. Me and my best friend in the world, Daxton, who's sitting over here, besides my wife, uh, me and him are walking out out of the school. I get a phone call. I look at my phone, it says no caller ID. And that's one of two people. It's either my mom or my dad. I slide over, answer my phone, and it's my daddy. And he says, hey, buddy. I say, hey, dad, what's up? He says, so I, I, how was your day? And I was like, it was good. He said, anything happen? I was like, no, not really. He says, well, I got a call from the school. I was like, oh, no. <laughs> he says, Mr. McCutcheon told me that you and him got into a little bit of an argument. And I say, yes, sir. He says, son, you need to go apologize. (laughs) Dad, I don't want to apologize. (laughs) I said, daddy, I don't want to apologize. I didn't do anything wrong. I'm completely in the right here. And he says, son, let me tell you something. And I remember these words to this day. He said, son, you need to go apologize to him because respect is earned and honor is given. Somebody write that down because that's good. (laughs) So I go up to Kutch's room and I apologize to him and I say, listen, I came in a little bit hot earlier. I was mad. I was frustrated. I'm stressed out. I shouldn't have came in and talked to you that way. And he told me, he said, I forgive you. You want to know why? Because I know you're a senior, stressed out. You're applying for colleges. You're applying for scholarships. I didn't do that because I didn't go to college. But I was still stressed out, workload and everything. And he says, I forgive you. Still didn't get my hat back till the end of the year, but hey, that's beside the point. You see... Asking for forgiveness, especially whenever you know you're in the wrong, sucks. It would be 100% honest. It sucks because you don't want to admit that you're wrong even whenever you know that you're wrong, right? You see, David went through the same exact thing. If you would, turn to Psalm 51. This psalm is written out of that time where David was reprimanded by Nathan. So... After 2 Samuel uh, 12, 13, David goes and he writes this psalm. And we're going to start in verse 1. Throughout this psalm, David is asking God for forgiveness. He's asking and he's repenting to God and he's asking to be restored. So we're going to pick up in verse 1. It says, God, give me mercy from your fountain of forgiveness. I know your abundant love is enough to wash away my guilt because your compassion is so great. Take away the shameful guilt of sin, forgive the full extent of my rebellious ways, and erase this deep stain on my conscience. You see, 
Repentance leads to restoration. Right? But the first thing that you have to do before you repent is you have to humble yourself. Because nobody wants to go and apologize to somebody. Or at least I would think. It's terrible to have to go and apologize to somebody. Especially whenever you know you're in the wrong. But whenever you humble yourself, it makes it easier for you to go and do that. You see, in the, in the process of repentance, there's a cycle. You humble yourself, you admit that you're wrong, and you repent for it. You see, David was already in this cycle whenever, at, whenever the verse in 2 Samuel happened. Whenever he slept with uh, Bathsheba in a, and repented for it, he was already in the process of humbling himself, admitting he was wrong, and repenting. If you would, go to 1 Samuel 24. In this scripture leading up to it, Saul is chasing David through the desert. This is whenever Saul was trying to kill David. And David is running through the wilderness, and he's uh, hiding out in caves with his mighty men, his band of brothers that he's put together. And just happened so, one day, Saul is going through and he's he feels nature calling a little bit. So he goes into this cave and David and his men are at the back of the cave. Well, like I said, he was feeling nature call. The funny thing is the Bible says that he went to relieve himself in the cave. He was going to drop a deuce deuce. <laughs> yeah. So while David and his men are in the back of this cave watching Saul just annihilate this cave floor. <laughs> His men are in the back telling him, hey, God's handed you over, or God's handed Saul over to you. Go kill him. In David's response, he says, no, I will not raise a hand against the Lord's anointed king. So instead, he goes up and cuts off a little piece of Saul's robe. Well, whenever Saul leaves, this is where we pick up in verse 5. Starts off, but then David's conscience began bothering him because he had cut Saul's robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this to my Lord, the king. I shouldn't attack the Lord's anointed one for the Lord himself has chosen him. Skip to verse eight. David came out and shouted after him, my Lord, the king. When Saul looked around, David bowed low before him. Then he shouted to Saul, why do you listen to the people who say I am trying to harm you? This very day you can see with your own eyes it isn't true. Look, my father, at what I have in my hand. It is a piece of the hem of your robe. I cut it off, but I didn't kill you. This proves that I am not trying to harm you and that I have, sinned, I have not sinned against you, even though you have been hunting to kill me. You see, David knew whenever he walked out of that cave that he could die. Whenever he walked out to repent to Saul, he knew that he could die, right? Saul could have sent swordsmen. He could have fired archers or arrows from the archers at him. But he still stepped out and he apologized to Saul. David knew the cost of what could happen if he went out and apologized and repented to him. But you know, David still did it. And you want to know why I think why? Why, Red? Thank you. I think that he did it because he knew that the cost of not repenting was greater than the cost that it would cost him to repent. You see, 
Repentance always comes at a cost. Hopefully it doesn't come at a cost of possibly your life. If it does, make better life choices. That's my advice. But repentance will always come at a cost. Right? But the cost of not repenting will always cost you more. What do you mean by that, Rhett? Well, it can cost you your relationships. It can cost you your integrity. And it can cost you your influence with others. Straight up. You see, David had every right to kill Saul in the cave. But he didn't. You see, in the same exact paragraph that he comes out and he apologizes to Saul, he forgives him the same exact time. If you would look at verse 9 through 11, Saul didn't deserve to live, to be honest. I mean, David had every right to carry out self-defense, but David honored Saul enough and he forgave him. In verse 9, it says, Then he shouted to Saul, Why do you listen to the people who say, I am trying to harm you? This very day, you can see with your own eyes it isn't true. Look, my father, at what I have in my hand. It is a piece of the hem of your robe. I cut it off, but I didn't kill you. Focus in right here. This proves that I am not trying to harm you and that I have not sinned against you, even though you have been hunting for me to kill me. So basically what David's saying at the end of this verse is I haven't sinned against you, but you're still trying to sin against me. You're sinning against me by hunting me down, trying to kill me. But he lets him go. He forgives him. He says, you're good. Other people are telling you what to do. I don't put that on you. You're good. You're, you're good in my, in my person. You know, this isn't the only time that David did this either. If you skip forward two chapters in First uh, Samuel 26, the same exact narrative happens, basically. Saul is still trying to hunt David, and he's in the wilderness, and Saul sets up camp for the night. Well, David sends out scouts, finds where Saul's camp is, and David and one of his mighty men basically just walk right into the camp under nightfall. So they walk in, and they're basically standing over Saul like this. And David's mighty man, or his mighty man, looks at him, and he says, Look, God's delivered him a second time into your hands. You don't even got to kill him. I'll kill him. He said, the funny part is, is he said, I'll do it with one strike. I won't have to do it twice. He was trying to be nice about it, too. (laughs) So David looks at me and goes, No, he's still God's anointed king. So instead what they do is they steal Saul's water pitcher and his spear. They go up to a ridge and they call down to the camp and they say, Hey, Abner. Abner was Saul's bodyguard and his head general over Israel. They say, Hey, Abner, look what we got. <laughs> He's, he basically calls out Abner. He says, How can we trust you to protect Israel and to lead the armies of Israel when you can't even protect your own king, dog? That would sting a little bit. I'm just going to be honest. But after they call her out to the camp, Saul comes out and he basically says the same exact thing to David. Like, or David says basically the exact same thing to him. He says, you're trying to kill me. I haven't even done anything wrong. I could have killed you, but I didn't. Let him go and he forgave him. 
got another story. So this happened probably about a year ago. Again, it isn't with my wife, but <laughs> I just got to clarify. Uh, this happened probably about a year ago, but we're going to flash back a little bit further. We're going to drop into little 12-year-old Rhett, and in sixth grade, about, maybe going into seventh, I went to a Bible camp whenever I was that, that year. And at this Bible camp, it was a rodeo Bible camp, and they gave out buckles to people who won the bull riding, did the steer riding, junior bulls, stuff like that. Well, I didn't ride bulls, but I wanted to get a buckle somehow, and I had no idea how I was going to do it. People tried to convince me to get on one, and I was like, nah, I'm smarter than that. I like myself. Not saying the bull riders are dumb. I just know that I can't do it. I'm too tall. My center of gravity is stretched out a lot. So anyways, um, at the end of this Bible camp, they were giving out the awards, and I won a buckle. And the buckle was called the Spiritual Award. And this award basically signifies like, hey, you have a servant's heart, and you were doing stuff that you weren't even told to do during this camp. And I won it. It meant a lot to me. And from that, I grew really, really close with the camp leaders, and I grew really close with their families. They grew close with our family. And flash forward five years from that point, they left the church. And it wasn't a clean leaving. It was more of like a rip than it was a clean tear. And it hurt it hurt a lot. And at the time, there was a lot of stuff going on. Uh, Dad got the diagnosis of Parkinson's. He doesn't have it. In Jesus' name, we're still believing for healing. And there's some personal stuff going on. I started high school around that time that they left, and that was a lot of adjusting to get used to. Well, whenever they left, I felt really angry and I was bitter, and I, was, I held a lot of resentment towards them, so I took that buckle because I saw it every day. I, every time I saw it, it made me mad. I mean, mad. So I took that buckle, put it in a box, hit it, didn't see it for five years. Is that right? Five years? No. A long time. We'll say that. <laughs> so I hit it, I didn't look at it, and I came back from Texas, and I was going through some stuff, and lo and behold, I find this box that the buckle is in. I pull it out, and automatically all those feelings start rushing back. I'm like, I'm angry. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take this buckle back. So, <laughs> I didn't know where they live. I didn't know their address, so that's why I didn't send it. And I wanted to see them in person so I could give them a, kind of a final to you. That's just how I was thinking at the time. I was mad. I wasn't making rational decisions, right? So I make this plan. I find out where their next Bible camp is. I find the address, and I'm like, I'm going out there, and I'm taking this buckle back, and they're going to take it back one way or another, whether I hand it to them or throw it in the dirt. <laughs> so I told my dad, I said, Daddy, here's my plan. I'm following through with it. And there's nothing you can do to stop me. I didn't exactly say that. I said, I have my mind made up, and this is what I'm going to do. You know what my dad said to me? He said, son, you're a man. You don't got to run it by me. Just go out there, and I'll pray for you. 
<laughs> so, of course, that made me feel like, heck yeah, I'm a man. <laughs> I go out there and I do what I want, right? <laughs> so, the day comes, I get in my truck, and it was a ways out there. I get out, get to my truck, I tell my dad, I say, hey, I'm going. He says, all right, I'll pray for you, son. I said, thanks, dad, I'm a man. <laughs> so, I get in my truck, I leave, I start driving out there. And as I'm driving, God starts speaking to me and he's like, this ain't right. I'm like, dang it, man, that's such a good plan. I was going to go out there and throw that buckle in the dirt. And he said, no, that ain't right. I was like, okay, okay, God, fine. What do you have for me today? And he says, you need to soften your heart. Okay, fine. So I'm driving, and God starts working on the inside of me, and he starts softening my heart. So I get to the camp. I carry through with the plan. I get to the camp, and I get out of the truck. My hands are shaking. I'm holding this box. My neck is red, probably redder than it is. Is it red? No, it's not. Usually my neck gets super red whenever I'm nervous. So I get out of the truck. My neck's red. My hands are shaking, and I find the leaders of the camp. I go over to them, have that buckle in my hand, in the box still. And you want to know what they did? They hugged me, and they said, it's good to see you. We've missed you. Man, I tell you what, if my heart wasn't silly putty then, it was soft before, but whenever they hugged me and told me that it was good to see me, I was like, oh, I can't throw this buckle in the dirt. <laughs> So we had a conversation, I talked to them, and at the end of that conversation, I told them, I said, listen, I forgive y'all because I've held a lot of unforgiveness and a lot of bitterness towards y'all. I forgive you, and I hope that God uses your ministry. That was the last thing that I planned on saying whenever I went out there. <laughs> I planned on some other choice words that were not of God. <laughs> but from that point, after I left, I finally felt the closure that I needed. You remember how I said with repentance that it leads to restoration? Forgiveness does the exact same thing. But see, as with, rest, uh, with repentance, how it takes humility, forgiveness takes a heck of a lot of humility. Let me tell you that. You see, it puts you in the same exact cycle as repentance. You humble yourself, you forgive them, and then restoration comes. You see, unforgiveness puts a weight on you that you didn't even know that you could carry. I mean, it's heavy. You see, I went out there, and I had so much unforgiveness on the inside of me, and I was so angry, I was so bitter, and whenever I went out there and I forgave them out of a heart that was of good intention, I seriously, I feel like I walked away 20 pounds heavier. It felt good. I mean, I felt like I could sit up a little bit straighter whenever I left. You see, the important thing besides, the most important thing besides humility with forgiveness is that whenever you go to forgive somebody, it has to be done out of a heart of love. 
You don't need to turn there, but in Proverbs 17, 9, it says, Love overlooks the mistakes of others, but dwelling on the failures of others devastates friendships. If I'd gone out there with the original intention that I had of going out there, throwing that buckle in the dirt and saying, Hey, you know what to y'all, and da-da-da-da, and I don't like you, and I hope that your ministry crumbles. That wouldn't have been good. <laughs> I would have left me probably more hurt than they than I went there, and it would have hurt them even more. So whenever you go to forgive somebody, or you think you're going to forgive somebody, make sure your, high, your heart is in the right place. That's important. Because if not, then you're going to go away knowing that you did the wrong thing. I promise you, you will. And you're going to feel even more weight than you did. I tell you that much. I've done that a couple of times where I just forgive them out of spite. It doesn't do anything. (laughs) So what do I want you to take away this morning? Usually whenever I'm crafting messages, the way that dad has taught me is that boil it down to three points that people can take away. I had three points, but I hated them. I did not like them. I thought that that's cheesy. I don't like that. So what I did, I talked to dad and I talked to mom. And I have one single takeaway. I made it easy for y'all. You're welcome, Miss Felicia. (laughs) Humility is the biggest role in forgiveness and repentance. You gotta humble yourself. You see, without humility, those cycles that I talked about, humility is the number one thing that causes those things to be carried out. In James 4, 6, it says, And he gives grace generously, as the scriptures say. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. See, when we walk in humility, we walk in grace. When we walk in grace and we walk in mercy, we know what that feels like. And when we know what that feels like, we can give it to other people. Right? You see, when humility takes a precedence in our lives, in our repentance and our forgiveness, it takes a precedence in multiple other places too. So, as I'm getting ready to close this morning... I want you to know how you can take repentance and forgiveness and put it in everyday life. You see, repentance and forgiveness is the key to any relationship having any sort of longevity or functioning properly. You ever tried to be like around your spouse and y'all haven't forgiven or repented to one another for a fight? (laughs) It sucks. Imagine that with your kids. Imagine that with your parents. Imagine that with your friends. That's miserable. Who would want to live with the weight of unforgiveness or not repenting for long at all? It's terrible. Have you heard of the saying, I'll forgive, but I won't forget? Those have got to be the most miserable people in the world. How, <laughs> just walking around all angry all the time. Man, my mama, she did this to me the other day. She said this. She said that my hairline's weird. I ain't going to forgive for that. Man, my kids, they won't pick up their toys. I ain't going to forgive them for that. That's silly. Most of the time, it's silly stuff that we get so upset about 
and we can't even find the heart to forgive somebody for the smallest things, how are you going to forgive somebody for the bigger things too? See, you've got to start small. You've got to start somewhere. You've got to start... You got to start the process somewhere. You don't just go pick up a boulder. You knock little chunks off of it. Start small and then get that boulder to where you can move it slowly but surely, right? You see, in Psalm 103.12, it says, He has removed our sins as far from us as the east is from the west. That's God that does that for us. So if we're trying to have the heart of David a heart after God's own, shouldn't we be looking to cast other people's sins as far as the east is from the west? Would we hope that they do that for us? Yeah. Man, I sure hope that people do that for me. How can you expect it from somebody else whenever you can't even do it for someone else? You see, the heart of God is for us to have that forgiveness. It's for us to have that restoration. He wouldn't have sent Jesus to us if, it wasn't, if that wasn't the case. Jesus is our catalyst to experience that forgiveness and to be restored, right? We have been forgiven so that we can know how to forgive others. Amen? So here's something that I want to close with that I want to say that's very, very important. You see, as important as it is to forgive other people, it's just as important to forgive yourself. Man, I've had to learn that. I deal with a lot of shame and guilt for certain things that I've done. And that guilt and that shame eats you up. It's terrible. But you see, whenever I learned how to forgive myself and how to let go of that weight that I've put on myself, man, the freedom is incredible. How do you think David went along with his life whenever he murdered Uriah, whenever he slept with his wife, and then the consequences of those sins led to the death of his baby? How do you think... David could live with himself. I'll tell you what I like to think. I like to think that David forgave himself. I like to think that after David found restoration through God, whenever God restored him, whenever David came to God and repented, said, God, restore me. I like to think that David found what that restoration felt like and what that forgiveness felt like. And I like to think that he applied that to his own life and he forgave himself. You see, God forgives you. So why don't you forgive yourself? Let's go ahead and pray. Dear Father God, thank you for this day and I thank you for the grace and the mercy that you have given us through your son, Jesus. God, I pray that this morning, that this message was impactful to somebody. God, I pray that somebody finds freedom this morning. I pray that somebody knows what that restoration feels like. I want to do something. Y'all can go ahead and open your eyes. Hey, prayer team. Would y'all come up for me? Mama, would you be willing to come up?
I want to do something that's going to take some courage. But it's important to do. Who here struggles with not forgiving yourself? I know that I do. If that's something that you struggle with and that's something that you want freedom from, I want y'all to come up to the front. You don't have to do it now if you don't want to. You can wait till service is over. But I want to stand up here because I've experienced freedom from that. And I want people to experience that same freedom because it feels good. So if that's something that you struggle with, I want to pray over you right now and I want everybody that's up here at the front with me to stand in that agreement with me. Dear God, I pray that you, I pray that you just help us to experience that freedom and that restoration that you've given us, God. God, I pray that we're able to experience what forgiveness is from you. And God, I pray that we're able to take that same exact experience of forgiveness from you and that we're able to apply that to ourselves, God. God, we thank you for the freedom that you've given us. We thank you for the restoration that you've given us, God. Thank you, Jesus. The front's open. If anybody wants to come up, you're more than welcome to. I'm going to keep praying. God, we thank you for this morning. God, I pray that if there's anybody in here that hasn't come to you in repentance and said, God, I'm sorry for what I've done. God, this is their opportunity. They don't have to raise a hand. They don't have to, they don't even have to say anything out loud, but God, their heart condition is right if that's them. God, we thank you for your goodness and your blood that covers us. If there's anybody in here that hasn't asked Jesus to come into your heart for the very first time, he's here. All that you have to say is just, God, come into my heart. I want you to be the Lord of my life. That's it. Thank you, Jesus. God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your goodness and your mercy that follows us every day. And we thank you for your restoration through Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.